Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code HANGUP. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 1st, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest tactics in college football recruiting, including coaches dabbing and various cake-related innovations, and whether Michigan's Jim Harbaugh is an evil recruiting genius. We'll also be joined by internet football fandom legend PFT commenter to discuss Super Bowl 50 and the reported retirement of Detroit wide receiver Calvin Johnson, among other footballish topics. Finally, John Wertheim will talk with us about whether quarterbacks are good looking, why great players make bad coaches, and other topics from his new book, This Is Your Brain on Sports. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, In a Few Seconds of Panic, He Has a Brain. He talks about sports. Hello, Stefan. Back-to-back Wertheim. The two dreaded, weeks in a row. The dreaded back-to-back Wertheim. Yeah, you never want to book the same guest two weeks in a row. But John Wertheim <laughs> will book two weeks in a row. The second Wertheim in a back-to-back, you know, you can your legs are a little wobbly. A little wobbly. But it, it's strong. It was yeah. a strong— uh, He strong rallied. Leg. He rallied. Um, and, hey, Mike. Amphetam- Mike amphetamines helped. It was uh, – I just want to note that it was a home and home, although Wertheim didn't know we were coming to his home to record, so the audio <laughs> quality is a little weird. A home and uh, home. Like this is this is a phrase invented by people who just discovered language yesterday. Well, we'll call it a home and home. That'll make sense. If you haven't heard it 45 times, a home and home. And we'll say there's no love lost between them, even though no one knows if the phrase is love lost or love lost or if it's sarcastic or not. In this home and home, there's no, no love lost. Like I'm a sports commentator. Give me a million dollars. <laughs> Great sports commentator voice. Um, Mike is the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. I thought the Jesse Eisenberg interview, as I tweeted, was a meeting of the minds that we all needed in this country and perhaps in the galaxy. Were you able to ascertain if he cared about sports? My my sense would be that he's not like a Daniel Radcliffe uh-huh. level American football fan. Well, he is a crazy Knicks fan, and he quite loves uh, the NBA. And the day before, we oh, did yeah, a you comic about vignette. The Starters podcast. Yeah, and the day before, we did a comic vignette. Whereas I played Marv Albert, and he played Jesse Eisenberg, getting uh, psychological counseling from Marv Albert. 
Now, the actual audio version of his book called Bream Gives Me Hiccups, the actual Marv Albert played Marv Albert. But I think Jesse pretty strongly implied that I was better with my horrible Marv Albert impersonation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members... We'll be uh, joined by Greg Wyshynski. So this is a more this isn't a home and home. It's a Grover Cleveland situation. Mm-hmm. He was on a couple weeks ago. Then we skipped a Wyshynski. Now we're back with a, a second Wyshynski. Uh, we're going to do a follow up on our conversation about John Scott, who not only played in the NHL All Star Game but won the MVP award. Greg was there. We'll talk to him about it. I'm um, to hear this bonus segment and others on Hang Up and listen to other Slate shows. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com/hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangout plus. Grover Cleveland was really the slate plus mm-hmm. of presidents. Oh. You, got, you got kind of a bonus administration. Right. And I would just like to note that this last week, the one without Wyshynski, shall forever be known as the Wyshynska Regnum. <laughs> <laughs> this Wednesday is National Signing Day for college football when the top high school prospects and all of the land sign binding national letters of intent agreeing to accept scholarship offers from whatever college they choose to attend. A lot of schools hold events to celebrate this important, blessed occasion. The one at LSU is known as the Bayou Bash, for instance. But under the fiery and perhaps insane Jim Harbaugh, the University of Michigan is taking the signing day ceremony to the next level. The signing of the Stars Party will be streamed live on the Players' Tribune website, Derek Jeter and Tom Brady will be there, as will Ric Flair, Gossip Girl actress Jessica Zor, and the musician Migos. Harbaugh's recruiting antics do not end there, his uh, publicity hunger. Um, he reportedly showed his interest in a high school kicker by sleeping over at the kid's house. He did the dab with another recruit. He was recorded climbing a tree at another recruit's house. When he was at Stanford, another story goes, he got on the carpet at a recruit's house and wrestled the family dog. At Michigan, Harbaugh also started something called the Summer Swarm, a series of what's known as satellite camps around the country. It's a series in which Harbaugh impersonates a bee in in various uh, apiaries around the nation. So the satellite camp business, um, it irked coaches from the SEC who thought the Big Ten coach was infringing on their territory by holding these little camps in Florida and other southern states. And now leading up to signing day, a bunch of recruits are saying that Harbaugh's push to get the best recruiting class in the country has led him in Michigan to renege on their verbal scholarship commitments. One recruit, Rashad Weaver, who um, had committed to play in Michigan in June, tweeted, I was informed by Coach Harbaugh that there is a 50-50 chance that he would or would not have room for me on signing day. I believe I'm better than that, but it's okay. It's all business. It is all business indeed, except (laughs) Harbaugh as the only one getting paid in this scenario. Recruiting rules are very complicated. Uh, Basically, a school like Michigan will pull a scholarship offer because there are limits on how, how many guys they can sign. And if a better player wants to go to Michigan, then someone who's not considered as good a pro- prospect will get the ax. Harbaugh has been pretty upfront about this. He said recently, it's a meritocracy. They've got to continue to perform and there's early commitments, both in the classroom, on the field, and as a citizen in this community. Mike, you're making some noises <laughs> yeah. in the background. Yeah. This segment's a meritocracy. You made yeah. the best noises. Uh, so what, how do you feel about Jim Harbaugh? Well, first, I, 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 I support his decision to scrap the 3-4 defense for the dog in one. Uh, he's, that dog was proved to be a good wrestler. And in the litany of things he did, some seem kind of fun, climb a tree, and some seem uh, actually criminal. Camped out at his house. <laughs> 
<laughs> I also like the fact that it's not uh, criminal. It's it's romantic comedy behavior, basically, is what he's engaged in. It depends on the agency of the uh, person who was houses were camped out at. I also enjoy. Jim Harbaugh's pas de deux with the recruit who can, even though the recruit says it's all business and makes no money, the recruit is not bound by the strictures of communication that Jim Harbaugh is. So Jim Harbaugh tweets, they said, which is a reference to the recruit saying, you know, he said that I could come play for Michigan for free, even though it's worth a lot of money. They said artificial sweeteners were safe, WMDs were in Iraq, and Anna Nicole married for love, they said. And that's like a brilliant tweet because it hits three different uh, vectors, right? The Anna Nicole mm-hmm. thing that probably skews female and pop culture, the WMD thing that has no specific gender, but it's a little high minded and kind of charged, a little more charged than you'd think a college football coach, especially one from a purple state, would say. And the artificial sweeteners thing that's actually on the cutting edge of science. I mean, I love that tweet, though, Car- though Car- Coach Harbaugh seems to be a horrible person. Wasn't that a quote from a movie? It was a riff on uh, something from a Mark Wahlberg movie Mark called Wahlberg Shooter. movie? Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the artificial sweeteners thing kind of hits the anti-vaxxer crowd. Mm-hmm. It's good. Yeah. It's a, a little, it's a little, it's, well, I just would like to point out that one's true and the other is horribly untrue and has horrible implications for people who uh, d- do believe the science. Anyway, let's not get into herd immunity or even the uh, Marshall recruiting bl- base. We are, we are inside the herd right now. Jim, Jim Harbaugh, they hire the guy to be the best coach. And this is what you have. To, I, I literally think this is what you have to do to be the best yeah. coach. And, and if you're willing to sleep on the floor, him. if you're willing to sleep on a, on a piece of carpet, which is how the kicker described it, in the bedroom of, uh, of a field goal kicker, what are you willing to do for a quarterback? You know, that's the question that's unanswered here. Harbaugh has Be to do this, Mike. <laughs> Be the carpet, yeah. Uh, Harbaugh has to do this, right? But what he also does and has a history of doing, as do other coaches, no doubt, is make these early commitments and then decommit. In 2010, 18 players that had committed to Harbaugh at Stanford wound up not going there. Rivals.com did a story about it, and they wrote... We've been told that when Harbaugh accepts a commitment, it is often the early stages of the vetting process and that over the next few months, both the coaching staff and recruit could come to the conclusion that it's not the right fit. But in that scenario, who's more likely to come to the conclusion that it's not the right fit? The university, Harbaugh, the coaching staff. The the player, of course, as with all of these relationships, is in a subordinate position. The player is the commodity. The player is waiting to hear what the great coach Harbaugh or the great coach Saban or the great coach Sweeney is going to do. They are at the mercy of the coach. And uh, M. Goblog went and tracked down what happened to the 18 players that had committed to Stanford. This was after Harbaugh got hired by Michigan. Eleven of them had chosen to go elsewhere. So more than half did choose on their own to go somewhere else. Maybe they got the vibe. Maybe they got a message. But they wound up going somewhere else. But there were a handful that Stanford wound up rejecting, that Harbaugh wound up rejecting. Yeah, and it seems like the same thing is happening now. There have been eight, I think, uh, players who are committed to Michigan at some point who are no longer in the class. And I was talking about this with Ben Mathis Lilly, who's on Slate's staff and is a big Michigan fan. And he made the good point that this is a weird Orwellian system in which, quote, unquote, offer does not actually mean offer and commitment does not actually mean commitment. 
there are these it's, it's sort of like journalists saying that something is off the record. Nobody agrees what the term off the record means. And then if there's a dispute, everybody just kind of runs to their definition and clings to it. And in this case, the recruits who feel like they've been lied to feel like they were a part of Michigan's class and that they had made a commitment and Michigan had made a commitment to them. And then Michigan and Jim Harbaugh are going to say, with a lot of history on their side and basically every other school in the country doing the same thing, it's like, well, you know what? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Like, you committed to us and then, you know, it's not until it's signing day, it's not official. You know, we're we're seeing other people. It's like, you know, you have to have the conversation about are we exclusive? Are we – Sometimes you don't really want to know what the other person is doing. Sometimes you really want to know that after the first date. Like other people have different standards, Stefan. Yeah. You've yeah. got you've to articulate the standards. The thing that's interesting to me, and I'll direct this back towards uh, the Pescation regions of the Northeast, is the conversation always goes to, well, we're not as bad as the SEC. And that's yeah. what, I, what I think the yeah. Big Ten and Michigan in particular – with the whole hail to the victors, we are one of the greatest academic schools in the country. They've always kind of fallen back on that. We're not as bad as the SEC. And LSU, and kind of the worst example of this ever, there was a player named Elliot Porter who they signed, was in their class, showed up on campus the day to move in. And at that point, they said, you're not actually on the team because we don't have room for you. This is not as bad as that. We can all agree. But I think it's it's just important for every school to say that somebody else is worse. It's like always being able to point out, oh, we're like 49th in literacy, but like somebody else is 50th. As long as there are these like tremendously horrible examples, then the schools like Michigan who are just doing the like garden variety da- daily what everyone does horrible thing just don't actually have to reckon with it. Yes. And literacy, as with college recruiting, the answer is always Alabama's worse. Um I, I also think that when we talk about the victims, you know, the, the, the kids, when we talk about programs like Michigan or the SEC programs, they're all going to excellent schools anyway. If, they, if Michigan screws them around, they'll wind up at Michigan State. They'll wind up at another Big Ten school. They'll wind up at fine, fine colleges and fine, fine academic institutions that don't let the, co- the kids pursue academia as much as they'd want to because they have to play football. Um, I, you know, down the line, it's kids who get screwed around where this is the difference between, you know, an actual college scholarship and not, and that goes on all the time. So it's just sort of like uh, worrying about the actors who weren't nominated for a Best Acting Oscar. They'll be fine. It's just everything else. It's kind of, uh, it's the pinnacle. It's it's first world problems that actually let you in on a little bit of the rot of the system. I think that the what a normal person would think of unethical is not only countenanced, it's demanded. So it really is unethical. So there really is no such thing as unethical. So I wonder what the unethical behavior is. It also seems that the stuff that's illegal doesn't seem that unethical. And I think we all agree at a certain point that since the kids should get paid and then when you hear afterwards a player, usually as someone who's gotten millions in the NFL or NBA saying, yeah, I did get paid. It doesn't seem that bad. I don't know what I would think the unethical ethical behavior would be. I kind of internally, I chafe at the fact that you have these unbelievably well-funded organizations from Nike to whatever the hell Derek Jeter represents with the Players Tribune and Tom Brady to all these millionaires doing these things other than paying kids money to induce them 
to come to a university. Oh, you'll wear these excellent Oregon uniforms. Oh, you'll get to meet a celebrity. It just seems so roundabout and hypocritical. Just give these kids some money and do away with all that hoopla. I think Jeter's offering them book deals after they after they're an done editorial positions, football. yeah. An editorial position, <laughs> the deputy bureau chief of the, uh, the the Little Rock Bureau of the Players <laughs> Tribune. Well, of course, there are ethical boundaries. Um, how about recruiting hostesses? How about you know what happened at uh, was it Louisville, you know, where players with were the escorts with the escorts, where players were being given favors. Sexual favors. Party favors. What about money? What about what about cars? There was a story a couple of years ago. Mississippi State was punished by the NCAA. Cars seem like actually a good for, thing. For among other things, a booster offering they might a need kid to drive somewhere. Oh, how about this? A booster offering a kid six thousand dollars to not visit Georgia or Alabama or LSU. That happened at at, at Mississippi State. I would take six thousand dollars to not you go know, to Georgia. The, cha- <laughs> the Chamber of Anti Commerce is <laughs> driving those efforts. I mean, recruiting hostesses started with Bear Bryant, I think. In the 1960s, uh, you know, so I, so certainly in the in the in the realm of haha, Jim Harbaugh climbing a tree or having a sleepover with a high school senior pales in comparison to the real sort of nefarious type of uh, inducements that are offered to to some players. Well, look, if the only thing that a high schooler is getting out of this process is getting to play football at the school he wants to play football at. And maybe some of the schools have like cooler uniforms or something, but that is the kind of value proposition that we're giving them in this system. You're not getting any money. The thing that you're getting, which is so incredibly valuable that we don't need to pay you is that you get to go play football at whatever, wherever you want to go, you know, so long as you're talented enough to get a scholarship offer there. So this just, this just kind of proves that even that part of the deal is a lie. And right. with guys who commit to Michigan um, and they're told, you know, there's a scholarship waiting for you by making that, you know, any choice that you make in life, like the decision tree gets pruned from that. So if this guy was considering Michigan and like 20 other schools, by the time Michigan tells him a week before signing day, you know, sorry, we don't have a spot for you. You know, all the other places he wanted to go it's musical chairs might not have a spot for him. Yeah. And so, I think that rather than like describing it in the terms of like ethical or unethical, it it is useful to look at it through the frame of like this just exposes hypocrisy. It's like a very useful way to view how like fucked the system is. And it's also all this stuff is so infantilized, like how they're giving the recruits like um, cookie cakes and at Auburn they let them play Madden on the gigantic Jumbotron. And it's all just like enacting a like kind of 17 year old's fantasy of it's like the movie Big or something. And then you have like Nick Saban playing Papa Shot with uh, with the recruits looking incredibly happy to be playing Papa Shot. Um, he, had just had whole, a, he had just had a Debbie's cake before <laughs> playing Papa Shot. So he was all good. The, but the, the whole other thing fu- is oh, sorry, just it, it's just like so infantilized, I think, <clears throat> is the right way to look at it. And, you know, you're you guys are exactly right talking about just like the weirdness of this non-financial compensation and how just like divorced it is from anything to do with the university. It's all about 
It's all about cookie cakes. Also, the other thing that's so funny about it is the qualities that players are always praised for by their coaches are exactly the opposite qualities that induce them to come to the school. He's a man. He showed maturity. He doesn't care about the hoopla. He plays for the name on the front of the jersey. Yeah, but the way we got him was to have uh, Derek Jeter doing splits with a uh, Sony Genesis system. He said dating himself. Yeah. (laughs) Sony Genesis. <laughs> that was I wrong in that? so many ways. Yeah. Can we do the bonus segment today on just debating the current science on artificial sweeteners? Or maybe we can maybe we can just <laughs> made from the same the stuff Facebook. as tar. Maybe we can do that on the Facebook page. I don't I feel like we haven't we haven't really come to an agreement there. Let's I have one one final thought from you, Fatsis, and then you have to get to the Michigan recruiting party. Um my one final thought would be that given that this system is not going to change, no one is going to stop Harbaugh from making an ass of himself for some kid Thank in God. order to get him to sign <laughs> at some college. So I think the kids need to one up it. They're not going to get much leverage. So they need to humiliate these coaches even more. You know, I want to see Nick Saban. is not enough. I want to see Nick Saban bread face. <laughs> I want to see that video posted by some recruit. All right. This is a very uh, well-timed sponsorship for me this week because my crappy electric razor broke. <laughs> Didn't really feel like getting uh, replacement blades for the razor that I had. But Harry's is sponsoring this week. They sent me the package of the razors and the shaving gel. So thank you. You know, I just appreciate their knowledge of my facial hair situation. It is it is very much appreciated. And Stefan knows that I'm in the 99th percentile for shaving avoidance. Mm-hmm. He, can, he can attest to that. Yeah, I'm in about the 84th percentile. <laughs> but it was a very quick and pleasurable experience this morning. Doing looks the like shaving. a clean shave from my angle. The mic is right in the middle of your face, but looks pretty good. The mic placement has nothing to do with Harry's. That's just, you know, how our studio is set up. But yeah, it was a very nice uh, foaming gel experience. It was a nice shaving experience. The razor has a, a nice hue to it, sort of a reddish orangish hue. And the blades, they're German-engineered. It's a close and comfortable shave. And the price, you can't beat it. Beat it. It's factory direct. They cut out the middleman. Chips right to your door. And over a million guys have made the switch to Harry's, and thousands more are switching every week, month. A lot of a lot more people are switching. Um, so you shouldn't be paying $32 for an eight-pack of blades. That does seem quite excessive. Um, the Harry's starter set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor the moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. These pl- these prices, they're already low, but we've worked out a special offer. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code HANGUP. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter code HANGUP at checkout. And Mike Pesco, what percentile are you for shaving avoidance? Uh, s- shave once a week, sometimes twice. So let's say three out of 14 so that roughly is what the the 83rd percentage you're right where with me a couple times a week yeah, yeah. and we need it we're yeah. we're um here suit oh, Mediterranean men yeah <laughs> we, we are got, swarthy we men we get our swarth on <laughs> we're swarthy men of swarth <laughs> the super bowl is still a week away so what else can we do but talk about who's going to win and who's going to lose and who is or is not an elite quarterback joining us now from california where he'll be in attendance at super bowl media day on monday night is pft commenter a man who needs a very lengthy introduction. Slate's Ben Mathis Lilly once compared the pseudonymous 
commenter to Stephen Colbert, calling him a stupid man for our stupid times. He is the author of such tweets as, let's all forget about violence against women for one night and watch Ben Roethlisberger play against the Baltimore Ravens. And Jack Del Rio name literally means masturbate into a river. He is the writer behind thousands of strong takes for SB Nation, including Cam Newton disrespected police by calling Peyton Manning the sheriff. And racism against Cam Newton doesn't exist hardly at all. In fact, is there so little racism that he's actually the one being racist? Mm-hmm. You can find him on Twitter, on the website SB Nation, and on Sirius XM, where he's the host of the radio show The Steam Room. But today, he's with us. PFT commenter, thank you for being here. Hey, hey, no problem. You know, when you say all of my takes out loud like that, back to back to back, it, it kind of makes me think a little bit like, you know, maybe I, maybe I went overboard with some of the Cam Newton stuff, but then I... I remember about him dancing and and uh, and showing up his opponents. And then I'm like, no, I haven't done enough. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so thanks for thanks There's for time. That intro. There's time to do more. In fact, yeah, you wrote absolutely. about Cam Newton. Yeah, you wrote about Cam Newton. You made a very astute point that he endorses Greek yogurt and therefore, quote, is inviting himself into kitchens and living rooms of white people, and in doing so, is making himself racist against black people yeah. by association. That is a, I mean, uh, uh, that's some depth to that. To that tip. What were you thinking like when, when, when you put that together? Well, when he's doing the Beats by Dre commercials, that's one thing, but then he, he starts to invade my own pantry uh, by endorsing products that I use and uh, without my permission or without inviting him in. And it's, uh, you know, it's essentially a home invasion, as far as I'm concerned. Um, when it comes to Greek yogurt, that's something that I've enjoyed for years and years, and I, I, don't, I don't want to associate that with Cam Newton. Right. And if anything underlines your commitment to inclusivity and endorsement of other races, it's your love of Greek yogurt. So you're kind it's, of above yeah. complaint, I think, in this regard. I, and I I'm agree. Greek, you know, so I, I'm with you. I, I think it's cultural appropriation. and um, you I know, think it it's appropriate cultural appropriation. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's what the phrase means. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're um, going to be at Media Day tonight. Yeah. Um, Media Day is kind of known for ridiculous questions. So how are you sort of going to put the rest of the media in line and really show them what's sort of an appro- appropriate Media Day behavior? Right, so I always hear right. about like these Spanish language announcers asking absurd stuff like, yeah. What what well, what are you going to do to show the way to bring up the fact that they speak in Spanish? Like I don't know why oh, yeah. it's relevant to anything. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, yeah they true. have people dressing up in uh in wedding gowns like asking people to marry them. This year, now what when is this podcast going to air? Um sort of airs in different uh kind of sectors of space and time throughout the universe, but kind of come out on Monday uh Monday evening, a little bit before okay. media day. Okay, great. So I can kind of let you let you in on a little bit here. Um, last week, I was lucky enough to be invited into a first grade classroom to teach the kids about takes mm-hmm. and how to write sports mm-hmm. takes. Mm-hmm. And um, these kids had some just barrel fire opinions that they were spitting at me. And I told them I was going to be going to media day, and I wanted some questions from them to ask the players. And so this is kind of brilliant on on uh, two fronts here on my part because one. I don't have to do any work to write questions because the kids all gave them to me. Two, I can say literally whatever the hell I want as long as I preface it with uh, uh, Jerry from Miss Joyce's first grade class would like to know. And then I can ask any question. I can say, why do you dance so much, Mr. Newton? Um, I can say, Peyton, why did you cheat and do drugs? Drugs are against the rules. My teacher says not to cheat. So I can say anything that I want, and they have to answer it because it's coming from the mouth of a first grader. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. It's sort of like the triumph the insult comic dog approach. Yeah, yeah, it's like, pretty much. I mean, it, it, you can you can get away with a lot more as long as you pretend that it's not you asking the question. That's an old journalism trick. What NFL players have seen you and recognized you as PFT commentator? So to answer this, you probably have to uh, commentator. You probably have to disclose how often you introduce yourselves or what kind of in-person interaction you have. So which ones have said essentially that I know your work and we're jibing with you on your wavelength? Well, so, um, you know, I, I like to think that Danny Woodhead and I would get along pretty well if we ever met. In <laughs> fact, right. um, he owes me a little bit of money. The Chargers were going to move up to L.A. I was going to drive out to San Diego and rent a truck, and we were going to pal around for a weekend, and I was going to help him move his stuff up the coast. Um, but it looks like the Chargers are going to be sticking around in San Diego. So, uh, Danny, if you're listening, um, I got Venmo, I got PayPal. Um, just, you know, it's it, it was a non-refundable uh, purchase <laughs> that I made, so hook me back up. Uh, but as far as other players, um, you know, I haven't I haven't really met face-to-face with too many players, but I do know for a fact that uh, Danny, the Long Brothers, and um, pretty much the entire offensive line of the Cincinnati Bengals, um, they all consider themselves to be students of the strong take, and um, that I know I know for a fact they read my stuff and they get it. They're like it's mostly the lunch pail players out there that mm-hmm. really appreciate what I'm saying. Are you an yeah. undersized commenter, or uh, what is your size? Yeah, no, that, that's a it's a great question. I think it's relevant to the strength of my takes. I I am the exact same size as Danny Woodhead, so I'm, I'm five eight, five nine. I, I tell if you're a chick, I tell you I'm five nine mm-hmm. between us though. Um, I'm five nine and I weigh about two hundred pounds. So perfect Danny Woodhead size. Um, you know, good things come in small packages. Mm-hmm. Probably but same. It's more same, about, it's same, more about same body size. fat. It's more about the size of your opinion than it is the size of your body. Yeah, and I have yeah. big opinions. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago, you had, you had a real strong take about Gary Kubiak. You noted that we don't talk enough about the fact that he had a stroke during a game a few years ago. And you said, however, I can see his medical history, medical history, working against, against, no, I, him this week. If you work so hard, you give yourself an aneurysm. That's additional bulletin board material for Belichick to push himself to the limit when it comes to preparation. You think he was just holding back on the aneurysm and he's going to go for it now with the Super Bowl? Yeah. Well, okay. So that's, that's interesting because he had a stroke or an aneurysm in a regular season game a couple years ago, right? And, now, for some reason, he's not having aneurysms anymore. It's like he's not working as hard as he used to. To me, that's a big red flag. It's like, okay, if you're having a stroke in October, but you haven't had a stroke and you're in the Super Bowl and you've played playoff games, like how hard could you actually be pushing yourself to just kind of let your brain cruise through those weeks of, of intense playoff football mm-hmm. um, without having a blood clot form? Right. Like that, that, that tells me that he's been letting himself slack off for the last couple years yeah i'm sure he preaches leaving it all out there on the field but really only once did he leave uh, a stroke out there on the field and since we know he has it in him i'm not saying you could bring it every week or you're not saying that but i see what you're saying i mean to get up for the big game you would think some sort of you know cranial or brain episode might be in order Exactly. It's like Metallica, you know, Metallica released Ride the Lightning, which kicked ass, but that was like some of their early stuff. And then later they're putting out, you know, The Unforgiven 2 and some bullshit like that, and which might not be a terrible song, um, but you know what they're capable of, and they're capable of just taking everything balls to the wall. 
and uh, and now they're slacking off, so you get disappointed in them. Like, give me fuel, give me fire, give me bolt. You know, it's a bunch of crap. Like, I want the old school Ride the Lightning, uh, maybe some of the Black Album stuff. And Kubiak needs to get back to his basis basics, and uh, and and start getting heavy with it again. I think. Um, I also so my my initial theory when Kubiak had the stroke the stroke was that maybe Wade Phillips was behind it trying to get another job like he <laughs> he was pulling the old Lily of the Valley trick like in in Breaking Bad um, and kind of dosing Kubiak uh, to try to get you know try to get back into limelight you know, I wouldn't put it past Wade Phillips he seems like he seems innocent enough looking like a big Winnie the Pooh type character but um, I think he's got some uh, some dastardly qualities to him. All right, I have two thoughts. Number one, I really hope Gary Kubiak does not have a stroke this week. <laughs> Number two, I want to know um, – there, there's a really huge issue going on in the NFL right now that I, I feel like we all really need your take on, and that's the Bills hiring a woman as an assistant coach. What is, what is your take on that? Um, has, has she ever played football? I'm not, I don't know the I, answer to that question, but right, I'm assuming that uh, it's Fair no. question. Fair question. Um, uh, when was the last time a male got hired as a head coach? And I, th- I feel like we need a Rooney rule for for males to get interviewed for head coaches now. It's like all you hear about is Jen Selter or Jen Welter. Jen Selter is the, the girl on Instagram with a big butt. My mistake. Um, <laughs> you hear about J- Jen Welter coaching the uh, the Arizona Cardinals. You hear about uh, what's your name up in Buffalo. And I, you know, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's. Uh, if you've never played the game in the NFL, I don't think that you have any business um, teaching other people how to play the game in the NFL. Except if you're if you're a male, then that's okay. You make a really good point. Like sometimes, you know, they say it's hard to tell the players that a scorecard because of this free agency. But now it can be even hard to tell the coaches from Instagram butt models. Right. Exactly. This is this is the path that we're going down in the league, and it's it's you know that's not my fault that I confuse them. That's the NFL's for for making me confuse them. You, you, that and, whole time, uh, that whole time you're talking about Wade uh, Phillips, Wade Phillips. I thought it was an Instagram bot m- model. I can't even get these guys keep these guys straight. It's crazy. Wade Phillips <laughs> actually could probably moonlight as an Instagram butt model. Um, I think Andy Reid could probably do the same, except like he, Andy Reid could be an Instagram fupa model. And it would just drive drive everyone wild, I think. I want to ask you about Calvin Johnson retiring. Yeah. Um, how do you feel like that's going to play in Detroit, you know, given the kind of tough times that that have been happening in the Midwest? And, and how do you, I feel like yeah, I feel, we've, we've prefaced uh, – anytime we talk about Detroit, we've prefaced it with, you know, they're just going through some really tough times for the last 40 years. Um, I, I honestly, I think if you live in Detroit right now, um, you know, you, you signed up for this, you're getting what you deserve. You're probably a union worker. And, um, so, you know, just like Calvin's trying to quit and still have his lifestyle, you know, union workers basically don't work at all and they still get paid, you know, more money than I do. So I don't think that's fair. Um, but if you live in Detroit, I think you kind of know what you're getting into. And if you expect anything better than what you're getting, um, then that that's on you. It's about personal responsibility as far as I'm concerned. I see. You like the lunch bucket guys, but not the union workers. Yeah, exactly. You can you can bring a lunch pail to work and not have to give 10% of your banana to your union boss, you know? Now, you, you've crystallized. I never thought of it that way. The banana analogy drove it home. I think what Detroit needed to do is just draft some more wide receivers along the years. That's that's where they went wrong. They don't have you know, they you have a stock to cover. If you're going to be Detroit... Just be full Detroit. Bring back Matt Millen as the GM. 
like um, hire Rod Marinelli again as the head coach and just like go try to shoot the moon. Try to go 0-16 every year and stockpile the best players at the most ridiculous positions and still not win with them. I think that if you're going to be something, go full out. Have NFL front offices in general gotten away from really bushy mustaches too much? They have, man. Like they're, so it's just, it's just like um, the presidency of the United States. There hasn't been a president with facial hair for over 100 years. What's <laughs> that all about? Like, are, we, are we afraid to like, be men anymore in this country? I got a good segue to that because we're really glad that you're joining us on Iowa Caucus Day. Donald Trump recently complained that there aren't enough concussions in the NFL, and the NFL, like America, is getting wussified. I wanted to get your thoughts on on the caucus, Trump's comments about football. Okay, well, first of all, nobody really knows if concussions are real or not. The science is very much still out on that. Um, I would turn it back on you guys. Have you ever had a concussion? I've never even seen a concussion. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I've got my bell rung a few times. Um, but you know, a concussion, I, I don't know if it's real or not yet, but I think that as a country, if we're, if we're, um, legislating morality and saying that having severe head trauma is bad for you, um, then I think that we're going down the wrong road here. Like things were so much better in this country back in the, uh, late twenties, early thirties, when we didn't punish people for getting knocked out and our country was doing really well. Um, nowadays it's like, okay, if you have a concussion, it's basically like you've got Ebola and you need to be locked in a room for three weeks until, you know, your mom says you're okay. And as far as I'm concerned, a concussion is just basically like having a hangover. Uh, in fact, like, so what are the symptoms of being concussed, right? You, you got blurry vision, you're sensitive to light, sensitive to sound, and um, like you can't, the exact same thing. Right, you can't count. You can't count someone's fingers. You don't know who the president is. These are all things associated with drinking and hangovers. Exactly. So my recommendation, my recommendation is to give yourself a smaller medically induced concussion to help you get rid of your main concussion. It's like the hair of the dog that bit you when you have a Bloody Mary um, to get rid of your hangover. Like give yourself a small concussion, and that'll help you get rid of your big concussion. So what you're saying is you agree with Trump. Yeah, well, ab- absolutely. I agree with Trump on 99% of what he says. Some would say watching a game broadcast by Phil Simms and Jim Nance, that's like the NFL giving us a small concussion. They're pretty it much is. prescribing they give, they give your six, cure. They give us 17 concussions a week, and they're talking out of one side of their mouth, making the game safer. But then they you know, put these guys on the air for 17 weeks, and it's basically like getting an anvil dropped onto your skull. Um, so they <laughs> need, to, uh, I think they need with, a little bit more consistency. Let's end with a uh, Super Bowl prediction. What do you think is going to happen in the uh, okay. game on Sunday? Uh, can I, hey, real quick, can I tell you guys the story about the Mad Dog, though? Uh, sure, why not? Sure. Okay, so, so anytime I come to a new city, I like to bring Mad Dogs with me because I don't know what flavors they're going to have, and I don't know if they're going to have my favorite, which is Habanero Limerita. So I packed up three Mad Dogs in my suitcase, rolled them up in clothes and stuff, and then um, I get to my hotel and my suitcase stinks like crap, and I unzip it, and I've got shattered Mad Dog all over my clothes um, that I'm going to have to be wearing all week, and it smells just, it smells like death in a suitcase. It's terrible. Like, if I was a police officer, I would have arrested me for, for lugging around this thing because it's just... It, there, that's not a smell that humans should ever smell like. So yeah, except that'd um, be profiling, and you know the the police officer <laughs> get arrested. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there you go. But uh, my prediction for the Super Bowl is uh, I'm going to say the uh, 
I'm going to go Broncos 9, Panthers 3. I think it's going to be a very low-scoring affair, a lot of field goals, a lot of hard-nosed defense. Um, and in a surprise, I think Owen Daniels is going to be the Super Bowl MVP. That guy gets it. That guy's a gym rat. He's first in, last out. Former workout partner, J.J. Watt, and so some of that famous work ethic and not steroid use is definitely going to rub off on him. So, uh, yeah, I like the Broncos. All right, PFT commenter, you can find him on Twitter, on SB Nation, and in the Steam Room, his radio show on Sirius XM. Uh, thank you for joining us, and good luck getting the smell out of your clothes. God bless, guys. So uh, Mike Pesca is going to set this interview out, uh, but I've got Stefan with me. Hi. Hi. Um, and back with us for the second week in a row is John Wertheim. He's the executive editor of Sports Illustrated. Um, he is the host of the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast, Beyond the Baseline, and he is the author, along with Sam Summers, of the book we are speaking about today. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, the value of rivalry, and what we can learn from the t-shirt canon. Hello, John. Hi there. Hey, so there are a bunch of different studies in this book. Um, There are a bunch of different findings that you guys write about, and we're going to talk about uh, three of them on the show. Uh, The first one that we want to get into is the handsomeness or lack thereof. Of sports of quarter- writers. <laughs> no? Not sports writers? I was going to say quarterbacks. I think, oh, okay. I think uh, it was sports writers, but then the editor of the book kind of talked some sense into John and Sam. And so we're left with quarterbacks. For so, the sequel. For the sequel. So um, you guys had an intrepid group of uh, research subjects go through and rank the attractiveness of NFL quarterbacks along with other position players. And I believe Matt Ryan was voted the most attractive. So, so I mean, the, the thesis is sort of why are quarterbacks so good looking? Are quarterbacks so good looking? We, we take this as an article of faith. Are, in fact, quarterbacks uh, disproportionately good looking? So we devised a study. We had people who did not, they weren't football fans. They didn't recognize these players. These were headshots, absent uniforms and helmets. And, you know, they, they didn't know. Tom Brady from Tom Berenger. So we, we had them rank quarterbacks based on attractiveness and compared them to other position players. And uh, the self-spoiler alert, the quarterbacks did not rank any higher than other position players. At first, I have some complaints about the methodology. You write that you chose defensive backs and wide receivers as the control groups against which to measure the quarterbacks. And you said that you didn't use linemen because they were too beefy and kickers and punters too scrawny. I take personal was, uh... offense at that, but we can move on. Let's move on. Oh, um, oh, so the the quarterbacks were not in this blind study any more attractive than these other position players. But we still attribute all of these wonderful things to quarterbacks and not to spoil the the uh, the result of the study here. But what we have found is that this is all about impressions, right? This is all about why we admire people and how we graft onto the people we admire the attributes that we might want in someone who were perfect or ideal. There are a few things going on here. We ran the study again, and we said, well, what about leadership qualities? Which subset, which position strikes you as having the highest leadership qualities? Again, based just on this, this facial image, not knowing who this, this person was. And their quarterbacks were much higher than other positions. So we, we thought a few things were going on here. One is this, this halo effect that we hear about, that 
we identify these people as leaders, and then we conflate all sorts of other positive qualities. The same way we, we do this all the time. You know, Jennifer Anderson we think is pretty, and therefore we also believe her to be moral and funny and, and virtuous. And do we do the same with quarterbacks? That they strike us as having these, these leadership qualities, and by virtue of that, we then conflate that they're attractive. I think the other thing that goes on is that at some level, players are sorted into quarterback positions when they're, when they're very young. And do these coaches, do these sort of youth coaches at first decide who's going to be the quarterback and who isn't? Do they not have subconsciously, do they pick out the leaders? And the leaders end up becoming quarterbacks based on these snap judgments. And from that, attractiveness is, is conflated. So let's talk about coaches. And you have a chapter on the curse of the expert, why the best players make the worst coaches. And so some of these potentially attractive individuals who are selected from a young age for a uh, special treatment and uh, trophy gathering due to their uh, brute strength and stature and ability to put a ball through a hoop, for example. Um, When they try to teach other people the game that they've mastered, they're not so great at it. And you um, go through some different theories about why this is. Um, The one that struck me, or the one that I kind of believe to be true, is that when you're talking about, you know, Greg Popovich and Eric Spolstra, there's just an enormous pool of humans who um, are trying to be basketball coaches who were not great players. And so even if a very small percentage of those guys turn out to be good at coaching basketball, it seems likely that there will be more of them who are good at coaching basketball than the very few, very top players who decide to go into coaching rather than broadcasting or selling barbecue sauce or something. Yeah, so so for this chapter, we, we were trying to figure out why, why it seems to be that these athletes who have had tremendous success, from t- Ted Williams to, to Magic Johnson, ha- have flamed out as coaches. And you're right, Josh, it's really hard to do this statistically. I mean, the other thing, you know, apart from just proportions and controlling for the quality of teams, I mean, the other thing is that if you're one of these terrific athletes who doesn't have the same sort of financial needs as, as the struggling coach going up the ladder, it's also a different type of job you're going to take, right? I mean, Michael Jordan was not going to go become the coach of uh, the Memphis Grizzlies or the you know the pre Doc Rivers Clippers. So statistically, it's 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 a very kind of tricky examination. But it, it does seem to be that there's a lot going on here that militates against these successful stars being good coaches. What seems to be true is that you know it's something that we've seen is that these incredible athletes, the best at what they do, operate on such a different physical and intellectual plane that so much of what they do is instinctual that they have difficulty conveying that to other people. I remember, you know, those stories about, and you, you, talk, you talk about them, Michael Jordan getting frustrated when he was a, a general manager because these players couldn't do what he wanted them to do. And they couldn't do it because he was Michael Jordan. And similarly, Ted Williams being sure. one of the worst managers in baseball history. We have a great example, too, with, with Bob Gibson. He was a pitching coach, and he would stomp to the mound, and he would say, just throw motherfucking strikes and grunt louder. <laughs> and this is something that goes on way, well beyond sports. I mean, what, what are sort of the underwriting, sort of the thesis of the book is, is what's going on here and how much of this is just sort of basic social psychology and behavioral bias. And this is a classic case where this curse of the expertise, this happens all the time when 
the absolute highest level of skill has this mental model where they have a very hard time conveying and expressing what's going on. It's sort of, how do you breathe? And this is true for musicians, and this is true for computer programmers, and all sorts of social psychology experiments that that animate this. And in sports, I think you get to a certain level, and whether it's Michael Jordan and his talent assessment, or whether it's Magic Johnson unable to really tell the Lakers what, what he expects, or Ted Williams on the bench, you have this, this expertise that is so, by orders of magnitude, so much higher than anyone else that you have a very hard time then conveying that into instruction. And you go down a level to uh, you know, Greg Popovich, to pick an example, Athene, I mean, sort of p- pick, your, pick your example. And it seems like you go down one level from that expertise and you're dealing with people that are exceptionally skilled but also have the ability to convey what's going on often by necessity. All right, let's end with a uh, look at why we keep rooting for teams that disappoint us. I'm sure if a listener will look up at the ceiling right now and think of their favorite team, I'm sure that their mind will fill with great disasters and disappointments and just anger and dismay. So um, what did you guys come up with about why we uh, keep taking the abuse? So it sounds counterintuitive. Why do we root for these teams that ritually disappoint us? At some level, it's loyalty. At some level, sure, it's, it's tradition, and he's a representative of our community. But there also is this, this issue of effort justification, where we have put in so much effort and made so much sacrifice, there's been so much struggle in rooting for this team, that we want to see this validated. And it really distorts our value of success. There's a famous study with, with why do we like Ikea so much, a great mystery behind Ikea. We have to struggle to build these, these damn desks and these damn chairs. It makes no sense. And what the researchers found out of the Harvard Business School study, what they found out was that the fact that you have to labor so intensely to build this changes your valuation of what's been built. We greatly overvalued the Ikea desk we built because we labored so much in the process. And we theorize that's what's going on in a lot of cases with these, these teams that we root for. It's not just no pain, no gain. It's the pain distorts our value. So when the Mets finally do get to the World Series after seasons and seasons of, of misfortune and futility, it means something different to us than when it's the St. Louis Cardinals. John Wertheim is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, the host of Sports Illustrated's Beyond the Baseline Tennis podcast, and the co-author of the book, This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Chris. Now it is time for After Balls. And Mike, you're back. Yes, it is true. I love when I don't do John Wertheim interviews because then I get to listen to John Wertheim interviews. I love that. Um, It's it's a special treat for all of us, except for me and Stefan. Let's uh, get back to college football recruiting. Uh, You guys know what redshirting is, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. What is redshirting? Redshirting is to have a player sit out a season in order to gain a year of eligibility. Okay. What about green shirting? Do you know what green shirting is? That is green while shirting. a red shirt does it, he do, he only goes to LEED certified buildings. A green shirt is – Is that Clemson, Coach Sweeney likes to have some green shirts and red shirts to create a Christmas theme ah, around his players. Fun. So the green shirts are the ones that enroll early so that they can – they like – connive to graduate from high school after like three years so that yeah. they can get a head start on spring spring practice. Then there's gray shirting, which is when you tell a guy he's going to get a scholarship 
And then at the last minute, you're like, actually, we don't have a scholarship for you. You can come to school, but you have to pay your own way, and then we can give you a scholarship next year. That's gray shirting. Why is it called but gray? Because it's like shady or because it's not quite a black, the black uh, ink of a commitment? Because you, you don't have a scholarship, but you kind of do have a scholarship. Because it's, it's sort of sadomasochistic, I think, uh-huh. is, yeah. is Oh, why. Fifty Shades of? Because it's temporary, like the gubernatorial <laughs> tenure of Gray Davis. Okay, let's let's continue. Um, and then one that I didn't know about, blue shirts. I still don't understand it. I've read like five. The New five, York Rangers are the only blue shirts I know. <laughs> I've read like five articles trying to explain what blue shirts are, but I still don't quite understand it. This is what ESPN's Jeremy Crabtree writes. A blue uh-huh. shirt is a player who arrived on campus as a preferred or recruited walk-on and goes on to earn his football scholarship. So this is a way that there are limits on how many scholarships you can give. Can bring a guy on as a blue shirt if you don't officially recruit him. So it's a way to like bump up your numbers by like only kind of fake recruiting a guy. So it doesn't count against your limit. Tennessee mm-hmm. is doing it. New Mexico State is doing it. Blue shirting. It's innovative. All the all the big schools are doing it. New Mexico State, Tennessee. <laughs> blue shirts. All right, Mike. What's your blue shirt? Actually, Mike, mm. we're gonna do it. We're gonna do a blue shirt innovation this week. We've decided what your blue shirt. Right, is. We've bestowed fine. a blue. We've bestowed a blue shirt upon you. Let's oh, do it. You're you're acting a little bit grudging, but this is a gift. This is a gift that Stefan and I are bestowing upon you. Okay. It is a bright, shiny blue shirt. So this is a clip from Chris Russo's radio show, uh, Chris Russo, the Mad Dog. Of is it still Mike radio? And the Mad is he on radio anymore? He is on radio. Yeah. I, I don't think he just like shouted this at people on the street. What well, is he on? Serious he on? satellite Terrestrial? Radio. Satellite, satellite radio. radio. Satellite radio. Okay. okay. So he was doing a trivia thing around the Super Bowl. And he had this trivia question. And as you'll see in the clip, he thinks that the answer to the trivia question is quite obvious. And he is fielding various calls from listeners who are not quite getting the answer. So let's, I, let's now, maybe you don't know that for years he embodied the character of the Marquis de Sade and and he would play, you know, he was very cruel with his trivia questions in the on the Mike and the Mad Dog show as listeners tried to earn their way to the Super Bowl. And in later years when it was televised, he thought the Marquis de Sade dressed almost exactly as Alexander Hamilton. So he'd show up in a uh, wig and a ruffled <laughs> shirt. I don't know if that's what's going on here. But yeah, he has a long history of asking what he considers to be hard trivia. But before I even hear the clip, what a normal person might deem irrelevant trivia. Right. And I think this question, because I don't think he expressly states the question at the beginning of the clip, involves the first Super Bowl and the order of introduction (laughs) of the Green Bay Packers offensive line. All right. So here we go. Uh, Give me the offensive lineman for the Packers who was last introduced during pregame introductions. Kramer. Not as incorrect. That's a good guess, Kramer, because, you know, he was on that line. So it's not Kramer and it's not Forrest Gregg and it's not um, Thurston. So there's only a couple more. Jesus Christ, it's only a couple of more. Rick in Tucson. Rick, good afternoon. How's it going? All right, Rick, I'm doing well. The final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions in Super Bowl One. Gillingham. No, it's not him. Now, there's only one more. There is only one more. There is, that's, that's it. One more. It's not Gail Gillingham. It's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Jim Ringo. It is not Bill Curry. It is not Fuzzy. There's one more. That's it. Manny in Jacksonville. Super Bowl one. Manny, final pack of offensive linemen announced during pregame introductions. I, I don't know. Take a guess. 
That one, I don't know. Jack Lord, no, that's not the answer. From Hawaii Five O, Ryan in Atlanta, Super Bowl One, Final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions was who? Jerry Kramer. No, it's not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It is not Gail Gillingham. It is not Fuzzy Zeller. It is not Jim Ringo. What there? It is not. No, it's it's not Bill Curry. Who is the goddamn offensive lineman who was announced lastly in that stupid, asinine, crappy, garbage, terrible production game by NFL Never? Who is the offensive lineman? God damn it! Larry Naples, who's the offensive lineman? Oh, Chris, you always put me on the on the, in a hole, buddy. You always put me on a hole. Who is it? Um, uh, uh, give me the give me the ones that already mentioned. No, listen, Larry, listen. <laughs> Who? Uh, what was it? Um, Forrest Gregg. No, I said it's not Forrest Gregg. God damn it! It's not Forrest Gregg. It is not Jerry Kramer. It is not Fuzzy Thurston. It's not Mel Hine. It's not Vince Lombardi. It's not Ray Nitsky. It's not Mike Webster. It is not Anthony Munoz. Jeff in Florida. Who's the lineman? Jeff! Wake up! Who's the lineman? Dead! Dead! This is the garbage you give me? Zach in Philly. Zach, who's the lineman? What, Seth? And I'm going to say Bill Curry? No, I just said it wasn't Bill Curry, goddammit! No! It is not Bill Curry! It is not Fuzzy Thurston! It's not Forrest Gregg! It's not Jerry Kramer! Who? Oh, it's not Big Bob Brown! Who is the goddamn lineman? Short in New Haven. Who's the lineman? Which lineman do you want to know? The offensive lineman! This is part of the mob. He get it right. The last offensive lineman! Packers introduced Super Bowl one. Who is it? The first Super Bowl. Yes! All right. Um, it's got to be between Bob Skaronsky and Tony Mandarich. I'll say Bob Skaronsky. Yay! Yay! So I guess there was no hold uh, monitor, or else they'd hear everyone saying Gail Gillingham. It took me two seconds to look it up. I guess also people who think it would be worth their time to answer a Mad Dog trivia question don't have good internet access. I also don't like that he <laughs> says, God damn. Right? Isn't that wrong? I know you can, but does that really enhance? It makes it seem more serious than fun. Him saying God. Wow. That really took a turn. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were just going to imitate Chris Russo and we'd move on. (laughs) But seriously, Bob Skaronsky. Bob Skaronsky. Yeah. Stefan, what is your blue shirt? I used to enjoy watching ESPN NFL scoop magnate Adam Schefter deliver reports from his living room. And that's because plainly visible on a shelf in the background sat my book about the NFL, A Few Seconds of Panic, which seemed only right. Schefter cut his teeth as the Broncos beat guy in Denver, where I spent a summer as a kicker. We chatted about his pal head coach Mike Shanahan while I was reporting the book. And I thanked Schefter in the acknowledgments. But a few years ago, the backdrop for Schefter's reports changed. I'm guessing because he moved into a much larger home befitting an ESPN star, maybe a five-bedroom in a gated community outside of Bristol. And I, sadly, am no longer featured on the Schefter shelf. So who's more deserving than I? I wanted to find out. Let's start on the middle shelf, left side of the screen. This is painful for me, for any author, really, who's been excluded from Schefter's oeuvre. 
because the first visible spine is live album three, Gone to the Dogs, a 1992 collection of newspaper columns by Mitch Album. Oof. A little bit better. Next to that, The World's Tallest Midget, The Best of Frank DeFord, which was published in 1987. The late L.A. Times columnist Jim Murray's autobiography classes up this neighborhood. Then in order come Winning Like a Champion, Building Success One Victory at a Time, which Schefter ghost wrote for Shanahan. Fair enough. You got to feature your own stuff prominently. Then there's a hardcover of Paul Zimmerman's 1971, A Thinking Man's Guide to Pro Football, and that's pretty cool. And then another Schefter book, Romo, My Life on the Edge, Living Dreams, and Slaying Dragons, which he co-co-wrote for former Broncos linebacker and steroids user Bill Romanowski. Finally, an edgy choice. These guys have all the fun. The saucy oral history of Schefter's employer, ESPN. All right, moving to the middle of that shelf, to the left of Schefter's head, there's a Pete Hamill, I can't tell which one, then When Pride Still Mattered by David Marinus, and then back-to-back second copies of the Romo and Shanahan books. And then a 2009 book that Schefter edited, The Class of Football, Words of Hard-Earned Wisdom from the Legends of the Gridiron, and Sutton by J.R. Moringer. I don't know why. Then comes Schefter's head. To the right of Schefter's head, his left ear obscures the title of what I am 99% certain is a 2002 collection of newspaper ejaculate by Tony Kornheiser called... I'm back for more cash. Schefter makes up for that crime against library science with reporting by David Remnick and Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken, then something with a scripty type on the spine that I can't make out, and then a third copy of the Shanahan Business Advice book. Come on, man. That's just terrible. All right. Jumping across a divider, we've got Parcells of Football Life, which Schefter did not ghostwrite. Then Love and Infamy, a novel of Pearl Harbor. That's Frank DeFord's World War II fiction debut, which Publishers Weekly said contrasts the irreconcilable gulf between cultures with the unbreakable bonds of love and friendship. Couple of Thomas L. Friedman titles, The World is Flat, and either The Lexus on the Olive Tree or Longitudes and Attitudes, I can't be sure, because the spine of that book is blocked by a mini Broncos helmet, which is there because of the Super Bowl, with the face mask pointing into the corner like an electric football player running into a side wall. On the lower left of the screen, we've got Schefter's paperback literary fiction, Stacked, which is what you do with paperbacks, I approve, Billy Bathgate, The Bonfire of the Vanities, The Alienist, The Prince of Tides, I will happily defend you on the Prince of Tides, Adam. Also, the winner by David Baldacci. Whatever gets you through a bowel movement, man. All right, let's jump across Schefter's torso to a highbrowish section, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks. You've not convinced Sarah me Grun's, about the highbrowness yet. <laughs> yeah, all right, so maybe possible highbrow. Sarah Grun's Water for Elephants, Memoirs of a Geisha by Arthur Holden. And then there's a John Grisham and a Jody Pico novel, another family photo, and randomly, the best American sports writing, 1991. Maybe Schefter was influenced by Pat Conroy's personal essay in there about teenage pool shooting. All right, and that brings us finally to Schefter's top shelf. A couple of wedding pictures, a family collage, fine. The only books there, though, from one side of the screen to the other, a row of those gold-embossed, probably fake leather books, you know, the mail-order editions of Shakespeare and Virgil and Jane Austen that are intended to class up a living room, but that actually no one ever opens. There were only a few of those, half of one shelf in 2012, when, by the way, Schefter Shelf had its own Twitter account, and ESPN did a Q&A with Schefter about his collection. And there's also no more Dr. Seuss or Michigan football history or a signed photo of Kornheiser and Wilbon, which was there four years ago. All right, what's to be done for your next remake? 
remodeling, Adam. First, dump the leather. It's embarrassing. Then ditch the multiple copies of your work. It's a little bit too self-promotional, I think. And the fucking Kornheiser, the DeFord novel, and for God's sake, the Mitch album. Get rid of the fucking Mitch album. And then, Adam, I'm begging you, please, put me back whence I came, where I belong, next to your right earlobe. If Adam Schefter ever turns up dead, this is definitely going into the uh, the evidence pile. <laughs> Josh, what's your blue shirt? Uh, over the weekend, I was looking at Sports Illustrated's list of the worst college football games of the year. Because how can you not click on that story if it shows up on Facebook? I'm very glad I did because SI's choice might actually be the worst game of all time. Uh, the game was Wake Forest, Boston College, October 10th. You'd expect it to be a defensive battle. BC led the nation in total defense. Wake Forest was a respectable number 38. But even better, and by better, I mean worse, is that Wake Forest was 118 out of 128 teams in offense, while Boston College was number 126. So just to emphasize that last point, BC had the best defense in the country and the third worst offense, which you have to uh, think would lead to some awkward conversations in the locker room. Um, so let's get to the action. First drive of the game, BC gets a great kickoff return. They're out to their 42-yard line. Boston College quarterback Troy Flutie, nephew of Boston College legend Doug Flutie, takes the field. Doug Flutie actually threw his famous Hail Mary against Miami from his own 37. So Troy Flutie is in Hail Mary range. A touchdown is surely imminent. So here is how things went on that first series. Incomplete pass, eight-yard run, false start penalty on BC. Another false start penalty on BC, a delay of game penalty on BC, and then a Troy Flutie run and a punt. Wake Forest gets the ball. They gain one yard on three plays and punt. BC punts it back. Then Wake Forest punts it back. Then BC takes Flutie out of the game, replaces him with a guy named Jeff Smith, who leads the team on a drive that ends in a missed field goal. Then Wake Forest misses a field goal. Then Jeff Smith throws an interception. Then Wake Forest throws the interception. Then Flutie comes back in the game, heroically relieving Jeff Smith, and BC goes on a minus 12-yard drive and punts. Then Wake Forest punts. Then BC punts. Then Wake Forest punts. Then BC punts. And then it's halftime with your score. Your Boston College Eagles zero. Wake Forest Demon Deacons zero. Now on to second-half action. Wake Forest gets the fall ball first. They punt. BC then fumbles on its own five-yard line. Starting at the BC5, Wake Forest goes on the following drive. Run for minus four yards. Run for two yards. Incomplete pass. Setting up a field goal. Mike Weaver's attempt is good. It's good. It's good. The scoring drive went for minus two yards. It's 3 nothing. Wake Forest. BC gets the ball back and fumbles. Then Wake Forest punts. BC misses a field goal. Wake Forest punts. BC punts. Wake Forest punts. BC punts. Wake Forest punts. BC punts. Wake Forest punts. Punts. And so this is where things get interesting. You mean they weren't interesting <laughs> up until now? It's 3 nothing Wake. BC has the ball. Two minutes to go. We, we've gone through 58 minutes of football action so far. They've got the ball. Two minutes to go on the Wake 49-yard line. The immortal Troy Flutie, nephew of Doug Flutie, is back in the game. The drive goes like this. Troy Flutie, incomplete pass. Troy Flutie, incomplete pass. But wait, there's a pass interference on Wake Forest. 15-yard penalty, ball at the Wake 34. <laughs> 17-yard run, first down of the week 17. By who, Troy Flutie? Seven-yard run, not by Troy Flutie. Ball at the week 10. Two-yard run. Mm -hmm. it's ball, the ball's down it's to the gonna 8. It's going to happen. It's third and one. The clock is running. There's 1.15 to go, and then this happens. Calhoun motion. Flutie 
will just sneak for it. Ball popped loose. Wake has it off fumble. Rolling on the field, the ball was fumbled, recovered by Wake Forest. First down. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Troy Flutie fumbled. So the game is basically over now. Boston College has two timeouts left. There's only 109 on the clock. So as the Mike Pesca School of Clock Management would tell you, there's 109 left, two timeouts. If they kneel three times, BC will get the ball back with maybe like less than 10 seconds to go. And they'll need a Troy Flutie Hail Mary to win the game. Mm -hmm. Based on the performance in this game, that seems unlikely to happen. But Wake Forest does not kneel, Stefan. And then this happens on third down. Bauer this one out, and it won't be interesting at all here in this last minute. Colbert, oh, he fumbled it! It's recovered by Simmons! Colbert fumbled it with 56 seconds left, and Justin Simmons falls on it! The band is playing. I am, I am like, obsessed with this game. I love this game so much. All right, so let's reset here. It's now three. It's still three-nothing. Wake Forest. Boston College somehow has the ball back again. They have it on the Wake Forest 11. They're down 3 nothing. There are 56 seconds left. They have no timeouts. They can score a touchdown to win or kick a field goal to tie and send the game to mer- overtime. <laughs> or maybe something else will happen. We'll see. All right. On first down, they run for two yards. The clock is running. It's ticking. The clock is ticking. On second down, quarterback Jeff Smith who is the one who is not Doug Flutie's nephew. He takes off running. He's running. He's at the five. He's at the goal line. Oh, he stopped at the one. It's a first down. So by the rules of college football, the clock stops temporarily. There are 29 seconds left. They're resetting the chains. But then the clock starts again. The clock is ticking. Now, I hate to belabor this. But remember, Boston College has no timeouts. They're down by three points. They can score a touchdown, and they'll win the game. Mm-hmm. They can kick a field goal, and it's a tie. The clock is ticking. It's down to 18 seconds. All right, now let's listen to what happens. Smith going to hand to Rouse. He didn't get in. Second effort. They got to do something. 12, 11, 10, 9. All right, so they have no timeouts. They just ran the ball up the middle Mm -hmm. with no timeouts. But, you know, given the efficiency of their offense, (laughs) they'd be able to quickly get the ball reset. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right, so... Let me just set the scene for you because you're not watching the video. The Wake Forest players are lying on top of the ball carrier. They're not letting him get up. The clock is running down. Boston College is desperately trying to line up to get off one more play. All right, back to the game. BC's got to get up on the line. They, they can't spike it, though. Four. They can't spike it. Time is out. They're going to have to run the play. Okay, so to be clear, spiking it would have made sense, but there's not time to spike the ball. So if they spiked it, the game would just be over. Like, you, you have to get the snap and just do something. Mm-hmm. Like Spiking would just be the worst thing that you can do. They have to run a play. With that introduction, now time for the dramatic conclusion of Wake Forest Boston College. Smith got it snapped. No. Can't spike it. Ball game over. Wake wins. He spiked the ball. <laughs> spiked the ball as time was expiring. <laughs> I remembered that it was 3 nothing, but then I thought maybe it was 6-3, the final score. It, it wasn't 6 It was definitely not 6-3. Definitely not so after 6-3. the game, Boston College coach Steve Adazio said, could we have thrown the ball? Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, with our outfit right now, that was the right logic, the right judgment, and that I stand by completely. It didn't pan out. It didn't work out. So it's on me. That's life. I'm a big boy. Got to handle it, and we'll move forward. Boston College ended the season at 3-9. and nine. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. 
You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. And filling in for him this week is Jason DeLeon. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. During this presidential election season, how can you shine when the conversation turns to politics? By listening to the Panoply Network's full lineup of political podcasts. There's Podcast for America with MSNBC's Alex Wagner, the campaign history show Whistlestop with John Dickerson, The Weeds, a deep dive into policy with boxes as recline, and the granddaddy of political podcasts, Slate's Political Gab Fest. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.